Hi, Mafra friends. Uh, good to be back with you. I'm sorry I can't be there in person today. Today I'm actually at Lakes Entrance. Jared and Linda Abdu asked if I could do some talks for the Lakes Entrance Baptist Church camp. So that's what I'm doing. And so I'm sending this by video. Thanks again to Wes Jackson for all his help. Um, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. But we're continuing and actually bringing to an end our series in the book of Acts today. Um, so before we do that, let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you again for your word, the treasures of your word, uh, your word which is life and light, your word which reveals your son and reveals our sin. Uh, we pray that you would speak to us today and convict us and change us. And uh, I, I pray that today you would achieve your purposes uh, in us and through us and, and cause us to uh, return to the things that occupy us during the week, uh, renewed in our conviction that, um, that the gospel is a powerful thing that changes people and changes communities. So please help us to listen well today and, um, and, uh, and by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would write these things deeply on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in any work of writing, uh, it always helps to have a good introduction. An introduction tells the reader what they can expect to discover as the rest of the work unfolds. A good introduction should also grip it, the reader, to make them seem that it, to make them believe that it's worth actually going on and reading. But then a conclusion is important as well. A conclusion should summarise, it should tidy up, uh, it should pull together the threads, and it should leave the uh, the reader feeling satisfied that it, that the conclusion has actually done all of those sorts of things. It needs to pull the whole work together. Now, when we read the book of Luke and the book of Acts, we realise that the two of them are complementary volumes. Luke is what, well, Luke is the author, and he wrote what we call the Gospel of Luke to be the account of the life of the Lord Jesus and his teaching. But he wrote the book of Acts, and he actually introduces the book of Acts. We've looked at these things before, but it's important to remind ourselves, especially as we come to an end. As he introduces the book of Acts, he reminds us that the former treatise is what he calls it. Uh, he says it was what beget Jesus began to do and teach. And so we assume that the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach, even though he's not physically present. He continues to preach through the Holy Spirit by the endeavours of the, the, the apostles and the people that take the message of Jesus out into the world. And so Luke and Acts need to be read together. They need to be seen as complementary volumes with Luke and then its sequel Acts working together to advance Luke's understanding of the, uh, of the gospel and what it even means to follow Jesus. Now, the two books together form the biggest single chunk of the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 letters, but Luke and Acts together is the biggest unit of writing by any one human author in the New Testament. So it's a significant thing. And other, other than that, it's an amazing and very important work of ancient history because Luke committed himself to seeking out eyewitnesses and he himself was an eyewitness of the things that he writes about uh, when he was on the road with Paul. And so it's a, it's a credible historical account of things that really happened to real people in real places. And Luke set it all down in an orderly way. But we understand it best when we realise that Luke has set up important themes in the gospel, the first volume, which he develops and brings to their conclusion in the second volume, in the book of Acts. And we should be expecting to see those things as we read them together. Now, Jesus told his disciples that they needed to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was given. So the story of the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem. 
the story of the Gospel of Luke ended in Jerusalem, but then the Gospel message has to go out from Jerusalem, and Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we find at the end of the book of Acts that the message of, the, of Jesus has gone to Rome. Uh, it's not quite the ends of the earth, but it's a long way from first base. We find that as uh, the story of the book of Acts ends, Paul is a prisoner, but the word is free. He's proclaiming it to anybody who comes to see him. And so this is a wonderful way to conclude the whole two-volume work because we see that Jesus' message has reached the world's greatest city and it's been declared boldly and freely. But how did it get there? How did the message get to Rome? This is a really long section at the end of the book of Acts that begins back in chapter 21 when Paul's gone to Jerusalem and he has a Gentile believer with him and the false accusation is levelled against Paul that he has taken Gentiles into the prohibited temple area. That's not true. Paul would never have done that. But nonetheless, the Jewish mob formed and Paul was at risk and so the Roman authorities to quell the riot arrested Paul for his own protection. Paul asked to address the crowd, which he did, and things were going well until he mentioned that the message that he preached included good news for the Gentiles. And then the mob said, away with this man, we need to get rid of him and kill him. So he was arrested for his protection. And the solution that the Roman Tribune proposed in chapter 22 was that Paul be examined by whips, in other words, given a flogging. That was one way of finding out what a person was on about. But Paul complained and said, no, you can't do that. I haven't been given a trial. And he declared that he was a Roman citizen and he appealed that the Roman law be applied to him. So there was no flogging, but he was then put on trial. And so we find various trials that Paul defends his case in. He, he talks about the message that he's preached and he shows how he's caused no offence to anyone. He's just declaring what the Jews should have been believing. But along the way, he says, because I'm not really getting anywhere here, I'm not getting there's, there's no chance of a proper fair trial around here. He says, I appeal to Caesar. It was the right of any Roman citizen to have their case tried at the highest level, even by the emperor. And so Paul asked for that privilege to be extended to him. And so he was taken by ship from uh, Palestine to, uh, to Rome. And of course, last week, Greg preached about the incredible events of chapters 27 and the early part of 28 where Paul was shipwrecked and he ends up on the island of Malta which these days is a sun-drenched island in the Mediterranean region and where you can to this day visit the Bay of St Paul um, but from Malta he went through Syracuse and then up to Regium and so we read at chapter 28 verse 11 so get your Bibles open and, and read along with me chapter 28 of the book of Acts starting at verse 11 after three months, three months on the island of Malta while they wait for the winter winds to die down, after three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Alexandria was in, uh, in Egypt and uh, no doubt uh, the ship was bearing a load of grain to Italy. But Luke makes the observation that the twin gods were the figurehead. We know who the twin gods were. They were Castor and Pollux. They were the sons of Zeus and it was felt that they would bring good luck to travellers. Uh, Luke, I think, includes that little observational touch uh, because it wasn't the, uh, the gods of Castor and Pollux that Paul was relying on. He'd been told by Jesus that Jesus would get him to Rome so that he could testify for him there. I think this is a note of irony 
that Luke introduces into the historical record. But when they get to Rome in verses 12 to 16, verses 14 to 16, we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Now that word meet there is a very interesting one. It's used three times in the New Testament. This is one of them. But in the world from which the Bible came, that word was used to describe the honour that was paid by the citizens of a town or a city when a very important person paid them a visit. And so if a ruler, if a governor, the emperor, if a military leader came to your town, you wouldn't let them walk unescorted into your town or city. That would be an insult to them. And so you honoured them by going and meeting them and escorting them the rest of the way into town. Now we know from Acts chapter 2 that there were people from Rome present in Jerusalem when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And so when Paul gets to Rome or near to Rome, He's met by believers. He didn't start the church in Rome, but there are people there who already believe the message that he's been preaching. And so they come to meet him. They treat him as one of the great ones of the earth and escort him back. Three years before Paul's arrival there, he had written to Rome to, to the Roman Christians from Corinth. And so these people would have known of him by his letter. They would have known of him by reputation. And now they give him the honoured welcome of one of the great ones of the earth. But when Paul sees them, he thanks God and he takes courage. You see, Paul was a human, just like you and me. He would have approached his tasks with some level of trepidation. Just because he'd been trusted with the message of Jesus, just because he was a gifted evangelist and apologist of the faith, doesn't mean he found it easy. Doesn't mean he found it convenient. He'd been told by the Spirit that wherever he went, he would meet opposition. And so he's going to Rome to have his case heard by no less than the emperor and you don't think he'd be a tiny bit nervous? And so when he sees that there's people already there who believe in the Lord Jesus, from that he takes courage. And so we find at the end of this section here in verse 16 when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. But Paul didn't sook, he didn't whinge, he didn't... Uh, get about like a hangdog and say why has this happened to me after all I've done no he wrote letters he conducted himself productively and so we know from reading the the letters that Paul wrote Ephesians Philippians Colossians 1 Timothy Titus and Philemon we know that he used that time to write to the churches that he'd established throughout his preaching ministry he used his time very productively and well well moving on we get to verse 17 please make sure you follow along Uh, in verse 20 Paul describes himself as being uh, in chains because of the hope of Israel so I've called this section here the prisoner of hope Uh, Zechariah chapter 9 verse 12 um, describes it's a sort of a it's an interesting way of of putting it but um, Zechariah describes people who are waiting for Yahweh to act on their behalf he says they're prisoners of hope And so I think Paul is a prisoner of hope here. But we read from verse 17. So he's in Rome. He's using his time wisely and well, as we know. But after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. So it only took him three days to do it. So this is clearly a priority for him. He called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, 
Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul gathered the leaders of the Jewish community. We know that uh, at that time in Rome, there would have been 20 to 50,000 Jews. The Jews had scattered right through uh, across the Roman Empire. And archaeology reveals that there were no less than 11 synagogues. And so Paul wants to speak to the Jewish leaders because it made sense to explain his message to them first. Now, there's a promising introduction because they, they, they're eager to hear what he has to say. But Paul makes four claims. In verse 17, he says, I've done nothing against the people of Israel or the customs of the nation of Israel. In other words, there's no ground for the charges. In verse 18, he says, that's been agreed to by the Roman authorities. They've recognised that he's innocent of any charge that are deserving imprisonment or even death. In verse 19, he says to them, and, he, and Luke, by repeating this information, is reminding us that Paul was forced to appeal to Caesar because of the Jewish objections to him, but he had no accusation of his own against the Jewish nation. He could have brought a countersuit. He could have said, you people have been vexatious litigants, and that would have played out very badly for the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, but Paul chose not to do that. He chose not to make use of his rights. He brought no accusation against his own nation but in verse 20 he gives an account of what it is that's brought him to where he is he says it's because he was obedient to the the hope of israel that he's wearing this chain now he's talked about the hope of israel at various points in his defense previously so we should already be fairly familiar with that but it's important to see that that luke wants us to get a hold of this that paul is saying that his message is the fulfillment of all that the Jews claimed to believe. Paul's actually making the claim that I'm more Jewish than you are because I believe the scriptures and I believe that the one that they're pointing to is the Messiah, no less than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the one who God promised to send. Now, this idea of the hope of Israel is something that you'll find all the way through both Luke and Acts. So right at the very beginning, just as we find this reference at the end right at the very beginning of Luke's telling of the story of Jesus back in Luke chapter 2 Joseph and Mary took the infant Jesus aged eight days to Jerusalem to dedicate him to God as the law required and while they were there they were met by a man called Simeon and in Luke chapter 2 at verse 25 this man Simeon we're told is waiting for the consolation of Israel in other words he's waiting for the fulfilment of God's promises that he'd made through the prophets, that God would restore his people and he would give them a new king. And so Simeon, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in Luke chapter 2, says, Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is the salvation that the prophets spoke about. And he says more than that, he says that Jesus is going to be a light 
even for the Gentiles. And so the message that Paul preaches is the one that was forecast right at the beginning of Jesus' career. But Simeon goes on, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he says to Mary and to Joseph, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So Jesus' message was opposed. Jesus' life was taken by people that hated the message he preached. And now Paul's in prison for the hope of Israel, just as Luke, as Simeon said way back then, the message of Jesus is going to be opposed, not just for Jesus, but for all who take that message with them. Now, the hope of Israel is the promise that all Jews should have been waiting for God to fulfill, that God was going to restore his blessing to the world. He made that promise to, to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. The curse of the fall would be replaced by the, the restoration of blessing. And that was going to come through a descendant of Abraham. But then God made lots more promises through Moses and, and then through David. He promised David that he would have a, a, a descendant who would reign as king eternally. And that king, the, the word for king was the anointed one, which is Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. Paul says we've discovered the Messiah. We've discovered the Christ. Jesus is the one who is going to exercise God's rule across the whole world. He's going to be the one who brings salvation to anyone who in the language of Psalm 2 finds their refuge in him. Jesus is the focal point of all that the Old Testament pointed to. He is the hope of Israel and the cause of Paul's imprisonment. And so we move on to verses 23 to 28. Paul's a prisoner of hope. But these Jews turn out to be, or many of them, turn out to be prisoners of unbelief. So at verse 23, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes if they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, Paul's quoting there from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was given a vision of Yahweh high and lifted up. And Yahweh asked the question, who shall I send? Who, who will go? And Isaiah says, send me. Here I am. Well, Yahweh says to him, you'll be going to these people and you'll, you'll explain the message and they won't hear, they'll hear it, but they won't understand it and they won't believe. Now, Jesus used these same words in commissioning his apostles. He said, the same will happen to you. He, he quoted Isaiah. So now... Here in the sequel, Luke records Paul going back to the words of Isaiah to describe what's happening right in front of his eyes. He's, spread, he's spoken the message of Jesus. He's shown them all day. He's been debating with them. He's shown them from Moses and the prophets that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the hope of Israel. And yet many disbelieved and that disbelief is a willful disbelief. It's just a simple refusal to accept what Paul was proposing and what Paul was proving. 
And what Paul could demonstrate from his own experience was absolutely true. They did not want to believe. And as a result of that, their hearts became hardened and their ears were stopped. Now that's in contrast to the Gentiles in verse 28 because Paul says, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So the message that was first trusted to Israel will go to the Gentiles and they'll give it a hearing. Now that's an intriguing episode to conclude your book with. It's the last major episode in the whole book. Just a few words of description follow it. Why would, Paul, why would Luke have ended that way? He could have ended with the discussion that, that Paul had in those seven days that he spent in Regium. He could have. He could have climaxed his book with the discussion that the Roman Christians had with Paul in the 40-mile walk back to the city. He could have, and that might have been a brighter and cheerier way to go, Paul talking to fellow believers. But no, he chose to end on this note, and I think significantly, I think this is a, a brilliant ending to the book because it shows us a number of things. The first thing is this, that Jesus said that the message had first to go to Israel. And so that was always Paul's tactic. Wherever he went, he started in a synagogue because the Jews had received the Old Testament. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it made sense to go to people who knew the promises of God and should have been able to put two and two together to work out that Jesus is the fulfillment of them. So Paul, true to his principle, true to the teaching of Jesus, he followed that, that through and he invited the Jews to come to him. But the other thing that, show, that, that it shows us is that the gospel will always get a mixed reception. Jesus got a mixed reception. Paul, the greatest evangelist of all time, got a mixed reception. Don't be surprised, even no matter how clearly you explain the message to others, no matter how fervently you pray, don't be surprised that some reject it. Because human hearts are very hard and when people harden themselves against God, God hardens them too. This rejection that we read of here is a really dangerous thing. Paul was grieved for his people three years before he'd written the letter of Romans. He'd written to these Roman Christians. And, and in Romans chapter 9, he points out that he has great sorrow and anguish, unceasing anguish in his heart. He says, I'd, I'd almost change places with them. I, I could go under God's curse so that they could receive the message and be saved. And he says, to the Jews belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, all these great privileges, they've turned their backs on them. But he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Because you see, the word of God, when it's preached clearly, will harden and will soften. It will tear down and it will build up depending on people's reaction to it. It's the same message and some receive it and are saved and some reject it and are damned. It's that important. Jesus himself had said that to reject one of his followers, if they bore his message, was to reject him and to reject him meant to reject God. That's recorded in Luke chapter 10. Jesus says if you go to a village or a town and, and preach the word and they don't, re don't receive you, just shake the dust off your feet as you go. And that's what's happening here with Paul. Paul's speaking to these people. They've closed their ears to the message. They're content with their understanding. They don't want it broadened or enlarged. They simply cannot believe that a carpenter from Nazareth could be the one who fulfilled all of those Old Testament promises. So they turn their back on the message 
that Paul says he's discovered. And so by doing it, according to the words of Jesus themselves, they're actually rejecting God. Paul's the true Jew here. He's accepted the message of the, of the scriptures and believes it all. These people have turned their backs on God. It's a very serious thing that they've done. And so we move on to verses 30 to 31, the last two verses of, of the book of Acts. So Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we've seen Paul, the prisoner of hope. We've seen the unbelieving Jews as the prisoners of unbelief. But now we get a tiny little snapshot of true freedom. Paul is in prison, he's in chains, he's guarded by a soldier, his freedom of movement is limited, but he's not limited in who can come to see him. And he's not limited in what he can do in that condition. He can write letters. He can have visitors and he can explain to them the message of the kingdom. We know because he wrote to the Philippians that the freedom that he had, even in, in the chain, had led to Philippians chapter 1, um, written from, from this imprisonment, he says that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel because what's become, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul was witnessing to soldiers. Uh, he used this unjust situation that he was in wonderfully well for the gospel's sake. That's real freedom. But notice there he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts is not a book about Paul. Paul's not the hero of the book of Acts. He's the central human figure of the second part of the book in the same way that Peter was the central human figure of the first part of the book. But Paul's not the hero of the book of Acts. There's another character in the book of Acts that almost can be overlooked. And that's the word, because the way that the word's described at various points makes it also almost sound like a, a human character. It's the word that does the work. The word is taken by people like Peter and Philip and Stephen and Paul, but it's the word that does the work. And so at various points when Luke wants to divide his work up, he shows with a little snapshot the power of the word and the effect that it's having. So at chapter 6, verse 7, he says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied. There's other references, but at chapter 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's the word that has the power. Paul was the human instrument of the word, but the power was in the word itself. It's the word that does the work. Paul might be in prison, but the word, being a living word of God, transforms people and gives them true freedom. Now, there's a wonderful example of this um, from more recent times. I inherited this book from my father. Um, Ernest Gordon was a Scottish prisoner of war of the Japanese in the Second World War who came to Melbourne for a couple of years and ministered at Scots Church in the city. And my dad used to go and hear him do Bible studies on a Wednesday lunchtime. But he wrote this book as a biography of his, his experiences. He was not a believer at the beginning of the war. He'd had some contact with Christian teaching, I suppose. 
but he decided it wasn't for him. He wanted a more exciting life, he said. But when he was in the prisoner of war camp at the River Kwai, a group of Australian soldiers who had discovered a Bible came to him and they said, we want you to teach it to us. There's got to be something better than what we're seeing all around in the, the devastation of war and the, the death of the, and the cruelty of the Japanese prisoner of war camps. And he at first uh, resisted. He said, well, I don't really know anything about it. They said, but you've been to university. You can help us. And so because he had suffered so badly as a prisoner, uh, he'd been ill to the point of death and left in the death house where the Japanese just left people to die. And it was through the kindness of some Christian prisoners who shared their food with him. He thought, well, some of these Aussies did that for me. Uh, I can barely refuse them now. So he said, all right, well, this is the deal. We're going to read the Bible and we're going to talk about it and ask what it means. We're going to try to set aside everything we've heard before and just read it and let it speak to us. And they said, that sounds good. So they set up a discussion group and the discussion group met regularly and it had an extraordinary effect. Listen to this. It was experiences such as these that made our discussions meaningful. We were developing a keener insight into life and its complexities. We were learning what it means to be alive, to be human. This is in a prison camp. As we became more aware of our responsibility to God the Father, we realised that we were put into this world not to be served, but to serve. This truth touched and influenced many of us to some degree, even some of those who shunned any religious quest. Men began to smile, even to laugh and to sing. I was hobbling back to my shack after a rather late discussion session, passing one of the huts, and this is all after they've done their day's work too, by the way, uh, gruelling work on very meagre rations. Passing one of the huts, I stopped. There was a sound of men singing. As I listened, I recognised Jerusalem the Golden, the hymn. Someone was beating time on a piece of tin with a stick. The words of the old hymn seemed symbolic to me as they rose in the still night. Maybe Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, is here after all with milk and honey blessed. Maybe man shall not live by bread alone. Maybe there is the milk and honey of the spirit that puts hope into a man's eyes and a song on his lips. They went on as I stood there singing the hymn once more. The song made the darkness seem almost friendly. In the difference between this joyful sound and the joyless stillness of months past was the difference between life and death. This hymn had the sound of victory. To me it said, Man need never be so defeated that he cannot do anything. Weak, sick, broken in body, far from home, and alone in a strange land, he can sing, he can worship. The resurgence of life increased. It grew and leavened much of the camp, expressing itself in men's increased concern for their neighbours. It was the word that transformed a Japanese prisoner of war camp. There was something that amounted to a religious revival, to the point where Ernest Gordon and one of his friends, when they got back to the British Isles, they were waiting to be disembarked at the docks, and one of them said, I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Now, it would be a brave person that would say that to a prisoner of war, but that was the testimony of these people. They'd been transformed by the power of the word, even in the horror of a Japanese prisoner camp, to the point where Ernest Gordon said when they got back to England, uh, there was a dock strike about to start and there was a threat that they may not even have been able to disembark from the ship. And he said there was a sense in which we were freer in prison than we were back home. 
That's the power of the word to transform people, to change lives. We've seen throughout the book of Acts, whenever the gospel's preached, there are some key elements to it. So Paul preaches the message of the kingdom and the message of the the need for repentance and forgiveness of sins. All through the book of Acts, we've seen examples of Christian proclamation. And you put them together and they build up to a picture of what the Christian faith is really about. It gives us a plumb line. It gives us a measuring stick by which we can measure any presentation of the gospel and work out is it true or false. The essential components of the Christian message, without which it's incomplete, the essential components are that it's about the kingdom of God, where God is going to restore his reign on earth that was lost in the fall in the Garden of Eden. He's going to restore blessing and peace and security, and he's going to eliminate sin and rebellion and the threat to his people. And he's going to do that through a ruler, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who will return one day to establish that worldwide kingdom for all who've believed. The message of the kingdom is rooted and grounded in the Old Testament scriptures, so we can't afford to ignore the Old Testament. And anyone who sidelines them simply doesn't understand Jesus because it's all predicted, all forecast in Jesus, and he's the fulfilment of all of the promises and great themes that we see there. It's a supernatural message because it has to do with a dying and rising saviour, one who paid with his blood for the forgiveness of sin. But the resurrection is represented as being a real historical event. And and so there's this supernatural dimension to it that will culminate in Jesus' return one day. That message demands change, repentance, turning away from sin, turning to the Lord Jesus. We can't stay as we are. And it's that part of the message that's so offensive to people. If it was just about good works, people will say, oh, I can try to do those. But the gospel message requires repentance and change, change of the mind, change of the heart. It requires letting things like our previous beliefs go. And that's why it was so hard for the Jews. And that's why it's so hard for people, because they want to cling to the things that they find their security in, no matter that they're letting them down so often. But the message is a transforming one. For those who believe, it will change them, as we saw in Paul. Saul, who became Paul on the road to Damascus, the former Jesus hater who becomes his most passionate advocate. The transformation that we've read about in the prisoner of war camp in, uh, in the River Kwai. The transformation that we know has happened to us when we've confessed Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But the other part of the message is that it's essential because we will meet God on Judgment Day and it's exclusive. Only Jesus is the way to the Father. So way back in Acts chapter 4, when when Peter's defending the faith to the Jewish authorities, he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given by by, by which we must be saved. So the essentials of the gospel message are tied together in those last little sentences of of the book of Acts that culminates the whole of of this uh, collection, Luke and Acts, together. But it represents a challenge for us because it's somewhat open-ended. The challenge for us is, will the gospel stop with us? The word was unbound. Paul was in chains, but the word was unbound. The word brings life. What will we do now that we've been trusted with the word? Will it stop with us or will we take it elsewhere? Will we see that it goes beyond the realms of Mafra Community Church? Will we take it to our friends and our families and our neighbour? Will we allow the transforming effect of the word to transform our will to want to take it to others, 
because it's so important that they hear and respond. So to that end, who are you praying for? Do you have a regular prayer habit where you're praying for people that you're seeking to win for Christ? Do you pray that God will be at work in their lives so that their hearts are prepared for those opportunities that he gives you to share the gospel with them? That's how our church will grow. When we're gripped by this message that's changed us and feel that we need to share it with other people because we know how much good it will do for them now, but how it will equip them to stand the test of judgment day to come. So let's be eager and earnest about that and let's pray that God will help us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great challenge of the life of someone like Paul, who even in unjust imprisonment used his opportunities well for your sake and for the extension of the kingdom. We pray that you would help us to take to heart the true gospel, the gospel revealed in the Old Testament, the gospel fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, the supernatural gospel of of a death for sin and a resurrection to eternal life, uh, the gospel that teaches us that one day he'll return and establish your eternal kingdom, uh, the gospel that demands that we change through repentance and believe in him alone. Please help us to believe that and help us to take that message out. And we ask that you would grow our church and we pray that you would grow churches across Australia that are committed to this message, that are committed to living it out. And we pray that through uh, the preaching of this word and through believing it, Uh, that you would transform our nation. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll see you next time.